All righty, peace be with you. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark 7, Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, as we continue in our series, as we work our way through Mark's gospel. Uh, we are, are slowly working our way through Mark's gospel, but we take a somewhat of a bigger chunk of text this morning, verses 1 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. There's so much here, I was tempted to to divide it into two, maybe three sermons, but it all runs together so seamlessly that I thought it better to, to take it all in one chunk. And so with that, we have a lot to get through this morning, and inevitably we're going to miss some things that I'd love to spend more time on, but such is the nature of preaching, I suppose. You can't always say everything you want to say, so... We're going to look at what God has for us and the Holy Spirit has for us, particularly as we look at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. When you turn there, if you want to stand with me with God's Word open as we read, let's listen with reverence and joy to the Word of our God. As Mark wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribe asked him, why do your disciples not Walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men." And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left his people, or left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, 
envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts now be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I think it's safe to say that scene five, act one, of Shakespeare's Macbeth has been lodged into the imagination of, West, of the Western world. It's referenced in many circles. You can find it anywhere from pop culture references to uh, psychology textbooks. If you've ever read Macbeth or seen the play or watched a movie, you know the story. It's a story about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, and, and they're conspiring to have Macbeth seated on the king's throne. And so they plan and execute the brutal murder of, of King Duncan which is just the first of many. And ever since they began to, to carry out this vile plot, Lady Macbeth has been unable to sleep. She's delirious with, with guilt and grief. She has nightmare after nightmare, hallucination after hallucination. And it all comes to the point in scene five, act one, where Lady Macbeth's maid is concerned for her lady, and so she calls the doctor in, and so the doctor comes, and together they, they, they kind of stand back and just observe Lady Macbeth's behavior. And they listen in on a, on a conversation she seems to be having with herself. It's nighttime, she should be asleep, but she keeps getting up from her bed and, and going to wash her hands and, and rubbing her hands over and over again. And as she does this, they overhear her saying, out, damned spot, out, I say. She's hallucinating that there's this this spot of blood on her hands from the murder of King Duncan that she just can't get out no matter how many times she washes. She feels defiled. She feels polluted. And she's deliriously seeking cleansing by washing her hands. I think that, at least in part, is the reason why this scene has been so lodged in the imagination of Western societies is, is because we can identify in some measure with Lady Macbeth, can't we? We all know what it is to feel unclean and defiled. We've all, at some point, in some measure, felt like the defilement and pollution of sin and guilt plagues us. We all know the feeling of, 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 of needing cleansing and relief after you know, we've said something horrible to someone we're supposed to love. We've all carried the, the feeling of pollution after some sort of sexual sin or some sort of deceit or some taking something that doesn't belong to us. We've all been plagued with having impure, depraved thoughts about others, about ourselves. We all know what it is to feel unclean and to long for cleansing and relief. And what's more is that we, we all have ways and mechanisms for, for trying to cope with or trying to remedy our uncleanness. The world over, people give money. They say certain prayers. They make pilgrimages. They virtue signal on social media. They participate in ceremonies and rituals. They attend services. They protest injustices. They distract themselves religiously 
with consuming entertainment and media and, and all more, and, and all to deal with the problem of guilt, of pollution, of impurity. On this passage we just read, we see the Pharisees and scribes' way of coping with or trying to remedy this problem. And it's, it's what we in the church have come to call this, this uh, idea of legalism. Legalism. Legalism is any ideology or teaching that bases our, our righteousness or our relationship with God on our being pure and clean on law and commands and traditions instead of grace. Legalism is a religion of works rather than a religion of grace. Legalism tells you that your relationship with God and your righteousness is based on a set of external laws and commands and traditions that you keep. It's ritual without heart. It's religion without regeneration. It's outward conformity but without Christ and his cleansing power. And it's one way that we try to cope with or try to remedy this problem of guilt or impurity in our lives. You very well might think, If that's not something that you struggle with, be careful, friend. Legalism can be a sneaky thing because I'm sure the Pharisees didn't think themselves to be legalists here. In fact, I'm sure they didn't. Much of the research that's come out in recent years about Jewish religion in this period shows that they almost certainly would not have considered themselves legalists. They would have considered themselves to be people that had a high view of the grace of God. But Jesus here sharply rebukes them for their legalism. I'm sure that the Galatians that Paul was writing to in the New Testament, they didn't think themselves legalists. But Paul told them that they were in danger of abandoning the grace of God for law and legalism. Legalism can be a sneaky thing. Religion that neglects the heart of the matter can sneak up to us all too easily. And so we ought to be ready and equipped to see it and identify it in ourselves. And all so that we might only go to the only place where true cleansing is found. So I want to encourage you this morning to beware of religion that neglects the heart of the matter. Beware of religion that neglects the heart of the matter. And we're going to explore this, this main idea as we walk through our text, seeing certain characteristics of such religion as we go. And the first characteristic that we see is in verses 1 to 5 here, where we see that we're taught to to beware religion that compares. Beware religion that compares. The Pharisees and the scribes, verse 1 tells us, had gathered to Jesus from Jerusalem. Remember that we read earlier in Mark's gospel that these are the big dogs, so to speak. They're the authorized theologians of the day. And as such, they teach certain ritual practices. Practices having to do with certain washings, washing hands and utensils and and seating areas before you sit down to eat. And understand, this was not for the purpose of hygiene. Okay, This was for the purpose of ritual purity. Boys and girls, you should still wash your hands before dinner like your parents tell you to. But for the purpose of hygiene. Right? And, and that's not what they were doing here. That's not why they washed their hands. They washed their hands for the sake of ritual purity. Now, if you were to go back in the Old Testament, you would not find these specific instructions being commanded anywhere. Of course, there were certain washing ceremonies commanded under the Old Covenant, but those ceremonies were commanded for worship in the temple and for the priests. But part of what you need to understand here is that the Pharisees, they they did not only look to the word of God for their law and commands and teaching, they also looked to what they call here the tradition of the elders. And so they not only looked to the 
uh, and taught the, the 613 commands found in the first five books of the Bible. They also looked at the tradition of the elders, which you can find being compiled in the first and second century in a document called the Mishnah, which contains thousands of commands. Literally, if you get a Mishnah, it's over a thousand pages. There are so many commands in, in the Mishnah, and what the purpose of them was is to, to try to explain and apply what the uh, Torah, what we find in the Torah and the 613 commands. They just did not find that to be specific enough, and so they came up with these traditions to sort of apply these commands in the life of God's people. And the reason the tradition of the elders commands these extra ritual washings is because, well, under the Old Covenant, God gave his people certain washings about ritual purity, and they were meant to serve as a picture of moral purity and spiritual purity and of God's purity. And so when approaching the temple, God's people were to be ceremonially clean. It was just a sign, you see, of, of what the internal state of their hearts ought to have been before God. It was to serve as a sign of moral and spiritual purity before God. But they were just signs, understand and only for a time. They're no longer binding on us today since the fullness of the new covenant has come. When you were on your way here this morning, you saw signs pointing you to the building where Veritas gathered. And, and the signs were helpful, but when you got to the building, you didn't need the signs anymore. And similarly, we don't need those old covenant signs anymore either. But it was commanded for God's people in the old covenant. And so God's people under that covenant were not to approach him in the temple without ceremonial cleansing. If they were ceremonially unclean. If they had come into contact with unclean animals or corpses or what have you. But the traditions of the elders reason that if God commanded ritual purity before entering the temple, well, perhaps it should be commanded in other instances as well. Like before eating. If you go to the market... As is mentioned here in verse 4, well, you might have come into contact with Gentiles, unclean people. You might have come into contact with, with pigs or chickens, unclean animals. You, you might have come in contact with people who just come from a funeral. With all sorts of potentially compromising encounters. And so when you come home, before you eat, you should wash like the priests wash. And in this, they thought that they were being very holy and very pure. But when the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples eating, they notice, well, they don't wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders. They eat with unclean hands. Now, they didn't have biblical warrant for, for requiring this practice, but that didn't keep them from teaching it as divine law. And it didn't keep them from looking down on others who didn't practice such washings. It's something we need to point out here because... The dangerous game of comparison is one of the most telling signs of what the, the Puritans called a legal spirit. It's a surefire way to identify legalism. Legalism loves to play the comparison game. The legalist loves to look down upon others and feel morally superior to others because of what they do or don't do in comparison to others. A surefire way to tell that you are flirting with legalism or that you're in its bondage is when you measure your holiness in comparison to others and not in comparison to the holy God. Instead of looking at the holiness of God, you look at your neighbor. Look at the way he votes. Look at the way they raise their children. You look at the kind of schooling they choose for their children. You look at the purity of doctrine. You look at the kind of church they belong to. And all you, you start to have these feelings of superiority because feelings of superiority 
are a good distraction from feelings of impurity, aren't they? Comparison has a way of distracting us from making us uh, feel better about how true and deep our problem with sin really is, but it still neglects the heart of the matter, and so we should beware of religion that compares. Not only that, we should also beware of religion that adds. We should beware of religion that adds. And we find this in verses 6 to 13 here, and this is getting at the particular kind of legalism that the Pharisees were guilty of. See, there are different kinds of legalism, and R.C. Sproul, he tried to... to uh, Uh, boil it down to kind of three different types of legalism, which might be overly simplistic, but for the sake of simplicity, it's helpful. It's helpful. One form of legalism, he says, is the kind that makes God's law an end in and of itself. Keeping God's law as an end in and of itself. Think of someone trying trying to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. They don't murder. They don't commit adultery, they don't steal or lie, they're like that rich young ruler that Jesus encounters, but, but they're, also not, they're also not concerned to trust in and treasure the triune God. That's one kind of legalist. Another is to try to keep the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You think of a, someone who always drives the speed limit. Precisely, they drive the speed limit, but, but they don't do so because they love and care for the safety of their neighbor which is why we ought to be concerned with the safety of our driving. But they do it simply because, well, that's the letter of the law. So even when there's a huge snowstorm and that person, it would behoove that person to drive more slowly than the speed limit calls for for the safety of their neighbors while they still drive the speed limit because that's the letter of the law. That's another kind of legalism. But then there's a third kind of legalism that Jesus accuses the Pharisees of here, and that's legalism that adds man-made laws to God's law and treats them as divine. And we see that here as he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 to them, saying, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He calls them hypocrites. Doesn't mince words. He says they're hypocrites because they honor God with their lips while their hearts are corrupted. More on that later. But then he says that they teach the commandments of men as if they're God's holy word. They're adding to God's law and treating man-made laws as divine. And we've already seen that they're doing this with the ceremonial washings from the traditions of the elders. And Jesus says in verse 13 here that they do this with all sorts of things. But here we see even more the danger of these additions because notice here that it doesn't just stop with these additions. Many of these traditions have merely begun with, in in the life of Israel, with what the elders probably thought were just helpful supplements of the law of God, helpful applications of the law of God. But then it progressed in verse 7 to teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Teaching these traditions as if they're equal to Scripture. And then verse 8, it progresses even more from merely teaching to leaving the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. And then it progresses even more. Verse 9, look, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish a tradition. And then it progresses finally to verse 13, making void the word of God by the tradition. It goes from adding to leaving to rejecting to finally making void God's commands. Jesus uses this specific example here of Corbin to illustrate the way the Pharisees did this. It's not exactly clear what exactly is going on here, but, but we can tell some things for sure. God's law, it's the fifth commandment, said to honor your father and your mother. 
And part of what that commandment entailed was that children were meant to help provide for and care for their parents in their old age. And they could no longer provide for or care for themselves. But you see, in the book of Leviticus, there was also this thing called Corban. And Corban is, is, it simply means like a gift devoted to God. It's set apart in devotion to God. And in Corban, someone might declare a certain amount of money or a, a piece of property as being devoted to God. But then in came the tradition of the elders, and they came up with all sorts of stipulations and policies and additions surrounding Corban, trying to make sure it was practiced properly. And it became a sort of method of deferred giving by the time Jesus' earthly ministry came. In other words, instead of setting aside money or property or whatever, uh, they, they would set aside money or property or whatever so that when a person died, that money or property would then belong to the temple and go to financially support the temple. It was a type of deferred giving. But then evidently, this tradition was at times found to be in competition with the law of God concerning honoring father and mother. Jesus, he seems to be referring to a certain real-life situation or situations in which this actually happened, wherein somebody wanted to withdraw some of money or a piece of property from being Corbin in order to care for their parents in the old age, in their old age. But in these situations, the scribes and the Pharisees forbade it. Jesus says in verse 12 that the Pharisees wouldn't permit it. Do you see how they added to the law of God? And, and perhaps. These policies concerning Corbin started from a place of just wanting to have helpful practices to help people practice Corbin. But eventually these traditions were taught as doctrine. They were added to the law of God. And eventually when the law of God and the tradition of Corbin were in competition with one another, it seems that the tradition outweighed God's own word. And so with that, we should be very careful with our extra-biblical traditions and principles and practices. Of course, ceremonial washings and Corbin might not be the extra-biblical standards we're tempted to advocate for today, but, but we can do this with other standards and principles and practices. And in some ways, you know, having extra-biblical traditions or principles or practices or standards or rules or whatever, it's inevitable in our personal lives and in our families. It's inevitable even in, in church communities like this one. Every church has extra-biblical rules or policies or practices or principles or traditions. We do. I hate to break it to you. Community groups, you're not going to find them in the Bible. Having an Eve of the Eve service, our annual Christmas service, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Our annual month of prayer and fasting that we do every year, you're not going to find that in the Bible. You can find the, the, what we actually do in those things in the Bible, but the specific practices themselves you're not going to find in Scripture. Now, some churches have rules about coffee in the sanctuary. That's okay. Some churches have policies about you know, using the church bus. That's completely all right. I mean, we, we do this in, in, in our personal lives and in our families with convictions about schooling, with rules about modesty, with rules about raising or disciplining children, with convictions about voting for certain politicians and, and political parties. We have all sorts of extra-biblical practices and principles that we abide by in life, and that's okay, but we need to be very careful to keep a lowercase p on our personal principles and an uppercase p on biblical principles. 
should be very careful to recognize where in our personal lives and in our families and in our life together as a church where we're simply utilizing wisdom to try to apply what the Bible teaches in our own particular circumstances or where we're you know, agreeing to abide by certain policies or principles or practices as a church simply because it's helpful in the way that we organize our life together. We need to make sure that there's a clear line between those sorts of principles and practices and what God has revealed to us in His Word. Because we can all too easily confuse the two and have that line fade from consciousness. And then as hypocrites start to teach as doctrines the commandments of men and slowly slip into rejecting and making void the Word of God in favor of our precious principles and practices, all while neglecting the heart of the matter. Beware of religion, that adds. And then lastly, beware religion that externalizes. We find this in in verses 14 to 23 here, and and not just here, it's actually all throughout the past. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on this because this seems to be really the heart of the matter here. Jesus is getting the heart of the matter here. He, he, He addresses this from the bit about washings and when he rebukes the Pharisees. Remember what he calls them. He calls them hypocrites in verse 6, didn't he? Well, the word translated as, as hypocrite was a theater word. It was a word used for those who were, who were actors in, in the theater. He calls the Pharisees play actors here. And of course, there are, there are different kinds of hypocrisy. Normally, when we think of hypocrisy, we think of people that act and, and, and speak differently in different situations and circumstances in different settings. They're kind of two-faced, so to speak. But that's actually not what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of here. They very well may have been consistent in all different sorts of settings. But the kind of hypocrisy that he accuses them of here is what we we might call an inner-outer kind of hypocrisy. It's a kind wherein someone's outer and external show is different from what is found in their hearts. We find this when Jesus quotes Isaiah here, saying, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. There's an external show of devotion to God, but it's void of a devotion of the heart. It externalizes. And so Jesus addresses the heart of the matter here in verses 14 to 23. As he takes leave of the Pharisees, he calls the people back around him and he tells them this. Hear me, all of you, and understand, you really need to pay attention to this, he says. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, externals don't make you unclean. It is what is within you and that comes out of you that makes you unclean. True purity before God is not a matter of avoiding certain people or places or foods or of practicing certain washings or traditions or outward behaviors. True purity is a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter when it comes to religion is the matter of the heart. And then sometime later, when the people leave and Jesus goes into the house that they're staying at, the twelve seem to congregate around him here. And they ask him to explain this, and, and, and you probably noticed here when I read this earlier that Jesus just kind of repeats himself here. This is purposeful. Mark is underlining or adding as an exclamation point to what Jesus is saying here. He wants us to pay attention. Jesus says, hey, pay attention to this. He grabs us by the shirt and says, pay attention to this. And Mark repeats it twice because he really wants us to pay attention to this. So Jesus says to them, but then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Literally, it goes into the latrine. It goes into the toilet. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friend, do you know where evil comes from in the world? It comes from the human heart, Jesus says. It's, it's from the heart, he says, that evil thoughts come. Evil thoughts here, it's, th- those are the thoughts and intentions and motivations and desires within you, that which drives your behavior. Evil actions come from evil thoughts and an evil heart. I once heard a story about an honest little girl who had just kicked her brother and pulled his hair. And when her mother said, why did you let the devil make you kick your brother and pull his hair? And she responded, well, maybe the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. She knew better than her mother. Evil thoughts come from within. Have you ever wondered why pornography is a booming industry? Have you ever wondered why we put money and valuables in safes? Have you ever wondered why there were 30 murders in Dayton last year that we know of? Have you wondered why a man would risk losing his family for 20 minutes of sexual pleasure? Do you wonder why your toddler is so contrary? Do you wonder why you get jealous when you see people who have a nicer home or nicer clothes or a nicer car or better behaved kids than you? Do you wonder why you are crippled with fear about what other people think about you? Do you wonder why people gossip, why people drink and drive? Why, why, why? It's because the human heart is polluted with sin. All of us in our fallen state apart from Christ are sinful to the very core of who we are. Understand that the biblical conception of the heart here. In modern parlance, when we say the heart, we mean like emotions or romantic feelings. That's often how we think of the heart today. But the biblical conception of the heart is that it's the control center for your entire life. Your heart is the very center and seat of your person. All that you think, say, do, feel, everything you are flows from it. It's the control center for your life. It's the very core of who you are. It's for good reason that Proverbs 4.23 puts it this way. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, your heart is the fountain of your entire personality. And everything that you say, do, think, feel, they're all streams flowing from this main source. But here's the problem, Jesus says. The source is polluted and it's pumping sewage throughout the entirety of the system. The reason we say evil, rude, vile, hurtful things is because that's what's in our hearts. The reason we do the things that we do and participate in the actions and behaviors that we participate in is because it comes from our hearts. You might say something horrible and then try to excuse yourself by saying, well, I didn't mean it, but that's a lie. You did mean it. It came straight from your heart because Jesus says, Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
You may do something wicked and evil and vile and, and then excuse it and say, that's not who I am, but that's a lie. It is who you are because it came straight from your heart. All the evil things come from within and they defile a person, Jesus says. We are far more sinful than we ever feared we might be. Somehow legalism has gotten the reputation for taking sin seriously, friends. But in fact, legalism does not take sin seriously enough. Legalism is in delusional denial about the pervasiveness and depths of human depravity. Legalism is like a man who finds out that he has heart failure and so goes out and gets a nose job. May make him look a little bit better for a while, but the problem's still there. He's still dying. Legalism would treat the problem of sin in all of its death, depth and pervasiveness with washing hands and avoiding certain kinds of people or foods, participating in certain traditions. Listen, even God's holy law given to us in his sacred word is not sufficient to take care of the problem and pollution of our sin. No amount of law No amount of externals, none of it can make us clean because the problem of sin and impurity is so deep and profound. Isn't that unsettling? It ought to be. Jesus means to unsettle us here. Not because he simply wants to make us uncomfortable, because he loves us too much to not give us the true diagnosis and because he means to unsettle us so that we might be resettled and more deeply settled in him. The reason that that this kind of religion can be so attractive, the reason that comparison and man-made laws and traditions and externalism can be so attractive is because it's, it's painful to face the reality, isn't it? It's painful to face and feel the pollution and uncleanness and defilement of our sin. And so we run to comparison and law and tradition and externalism and legalism all to distract us from what's actually there, but none of it actually remedies the problem. It just masks it and makes it worse. But the Christ who sees and knows our hearts better than we do ourselves unmasks it all here and he invites us to run to him for cleansing. So that's what I would encourage you to do before closing here. I would admonish you this morning, run to Jesus for cleansing. No amount of religion, no legalism, or externalism, or comparison, or law, or tradition, or ceremony will make you clean, but Jesus can make you clean. It's no coincidence that Mark has been telling us stories throughout this gospel about Jesus coming into contact with unclean people, the leprous, the bleeding, the demonized, the Gentile, the dead. And instead of him becoming unclean through him, they become clean through him. Mark is showing us that Jesus is truly clean. Not just ceremonially clean, but morally and spiritually clean. And our impurity is no match for his purity. If you would be cleansed from the stain and pollution of sin, you will find it in Jesus. And not just because he's morally and spiritually clean himself, but because he, as the only morally and spiritually pure person, he went to the cross And he took upon himself there the defilement of our sin and he poured out his blood so that we would be cleansed in its flow. 
He who was clean was made unclean so that we would be clean in him. And so, friend, if you feel yourself polluted by sin this morning, run to Jesus and be clean. Be forgiven. Be freed from guilt and shame. I would admonish you as we're about to sing, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Friends, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stains. Jesus will wash you with his blood. You will be clean if you run to him for cleansing. I'd also encourage you to run to Jesus for a new heart. Perhaps you're here today and you've been confronted with the reality that your heart is impure, unclean, defiled, sinful. And perhaps this is no surprise to you. You've already felt, you felt tired of yourself. You felt tired of your sin, continually tired of saying the same shameful things, doing the same shameful actions, manifesting the same shameful behaviors, and you just long to change. Well, in many ways, one of the most prominent promises of the new covenant that Jesus came to bring was the promise of a new heart. In fact, when God himself promised the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, he said this, he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you, listen, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. If you want to change, Jesus is where you find true, deep, needed change. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new nature. He will give you new desires and new power for goodness and truth and beauty. Not perfection, not yet, but real, deep, profound change. If you would cry out to him with sincerity and say, Lord, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm unclean. But you can make me clean. You can give me a new heart. I give myself to you. He will give you a new heart. In fact, I'd say he will have already given you a new heart. Run to him. Parents, I wonder if you know that this is what your children actually need. They need the new birth. They need a new heart. I'm sure many of us would say we know that. But often the way that we we parent and correct and discipline betrays our confession, doesn't it? I have often prayed for my children to be saved and born again and given new hearts in the morning and then met with their sin throughout the day and given them moral platitudes and behavior modification. I've done that far too often. Our children, they need to be taught good morals and good behavior and good speech and all of that, but they need far more than that. They need new hearts, and for new hearts, they need Jesus, and we're the ones who've been called to give him to them. And so when your children sin, do you give them Jesus? Do you address their hearts? Do you tell them about their need for the new birth? If not, we very well may profess the gospel with our lips, but functionally, we're legalists. We're raising our children to be the same. Run to Jesus for a new heart and teach your children to do the same. And lastly, run to Jesus for continued change. If you've already run to Jesus for the first time and he has cleansed you, he's given you a new heart, you know 
that while you have truly gone a deep, undergone a deep and profound change, the old you still rears his or her ugly head. You're new, but you carry the old you with you still. Until your days of running to Jesus are not over, your days of running to him for continued cleansing, for continued forgiveness, for continued change are not over. And yet how often do we run to behavior modification and law and externals instead? Martin Luther once said that we should never trust that Jesus laid the foundation then expect Moses to come and finish the building. Even our sanctification, our continued growth, it comes from Jesus, and so we should run to him for it. And in running to Jesus for continued change, I would encourage you, do not neglect the heart of the matter. Do not neglect your heart. When you bring your sin and confessions to Jesus, when you come to him for change, don't address the mere external sins and behaviors and actions and words. Consider the motivations, the thoughts, the intentions of your heart. Get to the very root of where these shoots are coming from and bring that to him as well because Jesus is not content to merely address the surface of your sin. He sees and he knows and he cares about your hearts because he sees and knows and cares about you. And he therefore wants to free us from the depths of sin found within our hearts. And so ask yourself discerning questions when you're made aware of your sin. Why did I say what I said? Why did I do what I did? What was I hoping to accomplish? What about God and his gospel? Was I not believing? What did my heart in that moment love more than Jesus? Get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is your heart. I know it's painful, it's unsettling, but it's worth it because in being unsettled in this way, Jesus would resettle us and more deeply settle us in himself. Beware religion that neglects the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is Christ and the heart. Run to him instead. Trust him for a new heart. Run to him and be clean and expect continued growth and change from him. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts this morning? Would you help us to not trust in comparisons or man-made laws or traditions or or externals, or even the goodness of your law itself to make us clean. Help us to run to Jesus and to run only to Jesus. Help us to trust him, to be cleansed by him, to receive new hearts from him, and to receive continued growth and power to change from him. As we do so, help us not to neglect the heart of the matter, but to bring our hearts to him, the fullness of who we are, In Jesus' name, amen.